Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Invisible Oranges podcast. We're joined here today with John Rosenthal. Hello. Brandon Corsair. Hey. Ted Newell. Hello. And returning as a guest is our former editor-in-chief, Andrew Rothmund. Hello. I am a guest. <laughs> um, we're very happy to, to have Andrew here with us. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks, guys. So what we decided to discuss today is um, some of our favorite films from the 70s and 80s that left a big mark on the early stages of heavy metal um, as cinema, along with a number of things of pop culture, you know, formed aesthetic or lyrical inspiration for a lot of the classic bands. Even all the way up till now, you'll have bands write songs or, you know, cite lyrics being influenced from something. So opening the floor to everyone. Um, anyone have a good movie you want to talk about and, and um, try to connect with some classic metal or extreme music? How about, I think, so just as a personal story, the first time I encountered sort of the direct correlation between horror movies or more movies in general and music is when children of Bodom and they did this, I think for their first four or five albums, I don't know about their later ones. They would include <clears throat> clips from poignant movies that they found lyrically inspirational or whatever, uh, as intros to their songs or little outros, little 10 second clips. Um, and I always found those to add an element of weird mystery and cinema to their music, which might've been devoid otherwise, you know, because it's, <laughs> melodic death metal <laughs> but um i john you have to you have to re-educate me do you remember what movies they cited in something wild and follow the reaper and hate breeder honestly i don't I can't remember. remember what movies popped up i love there. children of bodom but i'm not a bodom nerd like gotcha. i have i own their See, records I. I like yeah. them that much but i mean there's a great one where it's like we are enemies you and I, and it goes into sounding like a Ren Fair, and it's wonderful. Yeah, I love, I love the one that's like rip and cut and mutilate the innocent, and it's like this really sinister kind of feel to these otherwise more or orchestral songs. You know what I mean? Which the yeah. dynamic there really worked out. But there's like that. No, there's was... like the direct movie connection, and then there's of course we could go further into like aesthetics and themeology as far as connections. But that was the one, that was the first direct connection where I was like, that's really cool to put that. In, in on your albums like those clips from those movies yeah i mean i my experience with metal and horror is definitely more direct like when we were chatting before we started recording i brought up this guy maniac neil who's part of the pacific northwest scene at this point i think he has a project called blood freak he has one called frightmare and uh he makes horror metal where it's, you know, clips from horror movies and all the lyrics are about the horror movie, etc. So there's like Sleepaway Camp, Friday the 13th Part 2. It just keeps going down the list and uh, it gets very nerdy very quickly. And it's very mm. fun. But uh, definitely check out like Bringing Back the Bloodshed by uh, Frightmare if you want some very overt horror metal that isn't like, uh, what's that band from Chicago? Macabre. Mm. Yeah. If you're going to go there, uh, I mean, pretty much the entire Razorback Records, like, you know, oh, yeah. back catalog is bands that were just full of fucking killer horror samples and lyrics that they were just taken right out of, you know, horror movies are like Hooded Menace, who took it a step further and 
their first few albums all had like straight covers of theme songs from horror movies. Yep. Well, and Hooded Menace uh, got their start on Razorback back in the day. Yeah. So that's a good tie-in. The, um, you know, uh, back in the before times, uh, before COVID, <laughs> which it seems like three centuries ago, um, I tried to, I attempted to start a column, and and at some point I will try to maybe resurrect its corpse. Yes. Um, but I did talk about some movies related to metal, and you know, I th- I think definitely something to mention here is you know from its very beginnings, like most people. I think um, among our peers and everyone think of Black Sabbath as the first heavy metal band. Um, and there, there's caveats and asterisks to that. But in, in general, I think most of us or most people we know would agree about that. And Black Sabbath is named after a horror film from actually, you know, we were talking about 70s and 80s, but obviously since they got their start, like 69, 70, it's a, a Mario Bava movie, which is a uh, Italian horror film from the 60s. And uh, it's it's a little dated these days, but um, it's a good movie. Uh, definitely worth checking out. And it has, um, I believe, Long Chaney um, kind of narrating it. Um, Long Chaney narrating? Yeah. The Man of a and, Thousand and he plays Faces? A, yeah. And he, um, I, I will double check that to make sure I'm not being very inaccurate, but I do believe he's uh, on it and, and plays a vampire or some sort of creature uh, during it. Like it's, it's one of those like um, three short stories that are combined into a full movie. Um, and also is a later reference again, cause it's funny how, you know, influence that and then, something else like the very first deceased album cover uh that <laughs> picture still is yeah. yeah is still from that movie of um a, a very kind of uh, Edgar Allan Poe-ish type story where this woman uh thinks this dead corpse is like haunting her um so yeah so from its very beginnings and and I think even when when I was talking about that with I think I was well, and we can lead in with, with those if anyone wants to talk about it. I, it was about The Wicker Man and um, and Midsummer. Um, but when discussing, like, the movie Black Sabbath, because um, I think it was Geezer Butler came up with the idea. And the story goes that, you know, they were still called Earth and they were playing in their rehearsal room. And they go outside for a smoke or something. And they see this long line going into the movie theater across the street to see Black Sabbath. And Geezer is like, isn't it crazy how people will go and pay money to get scared? And then he thought, you know, no one really does that with music. Why don't we write scary music? Brilliant. Which, Absolutely uh, brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Which I, I think leads into, Andrew, what you were going to say about how to explain uh, heavy metal to people who are not familiar with it. Right. I found that the quickest route, if you want to get out of the conversation ASAP, which is sometimes the case, but... In any case, it's just to explain it like, hey, it's, you know, people go to the movies to be scared, too. Like, it's not, I mean, it's an unsettling feeling, but it's something people actually enjoy for whatever psychological reason. The same can be applied to music. Hell, it can be applied to visual art as well. I would fi- I, I would say H.R. Giger's artwork is extremely disturbing in some cases um, and horrifying if you stare long enough. But, 
you know, that idea of taking the psychological sort of dissonance you have to encounter with, I'm scared, but also this is enjoyable. You apply that to music and you, and you end up in the same place. This is why I think aesthetically and thematically horror and metal are inextricably intertwined. You know, I think there's differences as we branch off into separate subgenres and whatever. But, you know, by and large, I think metal is horror movie music pretty much. I mean, Joe, I mentioned to you earlier, I, I daydream often like if I rewatch 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is not a horror movie, but it's one of my favorite sort of atmospheric, all-encompassing more Homeric statements in the film world. Um, I always think like, wow, these sections, while the music is fantastic and the composition is great, man, some atmospheric black metal would really fucking <laughs> do up these, these really visual scenes. Um, that's just me thinking though. Well, as, as John being our, our resident black metal expert, uh, mm. <laughs> I think thinking about what Andrew just said there, I'm imagining like Limbonic art or Arturus <laughs> paired up with yeah. 2001. Yeah, that's about right. I was I was actually hearing the uh, the Wagner that do do do. Wait, was it Wagner? Was it Strauss? No, it was uh, Holst. I think was that Holst? Um, no, there was um there there are vast portions that are based on a tone poem by not Holst. I'd have to well, look it up. There's the Blue Danube, but, which is Strauss, right? Um, and uh, I mean Mars. Uh, because I think that's the the big percussive one. Um, that's Holst, I think, from the Planet okay. Suite. That's um, actually a huge hole in my. Oh no 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 no! It was no. I'm getting it mixed up. It was the Spake Zarathustra. That's the big finale yeah. one in the movie, uh, which is yeah, that's Wagner. It's um, it's Ricard something. Anyway, uh, you know, I'm I'm hearing that theme, the ba 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 da dum 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 dum. I'm hearing that with blast beats. It's wonderful. Oh, yes, Richard John, I love the way you think. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, that's you know, instead of dum dum dum, but like, yeah, yeah now I'm talking. I mean, it's funny too. Yeah, like you mentioned that. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's weird tangent, kind of, but um, like it instantly when you mentioned that, it reminded me of in the um, Metal Headbangers Journey documentary when Sam Dunn's trying to explain black metal it's like uh, punk rock meets Alice Cooper meets Wagner um, and certainly for a layman who has no reference point that's not the worst um, introduction to give yeah it, it does require some thinking to plug those three elements together but at the same time that's I find that definition to be accurate sure it's definitely the could you say Wagnerian Wagnerian like that yeah. that what is that? What are we talking about there? What does the well, adjective describe that? Yeah. It's Wagnerian. In the, yeah. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, so many of these, you know, influences intersect and interweave. Like I can immediately bring this back to the other side of film and literature having an influence on metal outside of horror. Because uh, Wagner was one of the major influences with his um, ring cycle on Tolkien. And Tolkien, of course, is the granddaddy of all fantasy, uh, modern fantasy, and certainly, you know, power metal and a lot of classic metal and traditional heavy metal, that is bread and butter material. Um, I mean, Sirith Ungol is literally named out of a play. I mean, there are so many metal bands with Amon Amarth, Gorgoroth, Sirith Ungol, straight out of Tolkien, which obviously from a cinematic perspective, we had the movies 
um, in the early 2000s. And before that, um, from the 80s, which I remember bef- seeing, like renting on VHS, the Ralph Bakshi uh, of Lord course. of the Rings, which still to, to me has a certain charm to it. <laughs> well, it's, it's it sort of explains that. Go ahead. It's interesting that you say that too, because you know you also had around the same time period in the early '80s, you had the Conan movies, and obviously Robert Howard was also a, you know an immense influence on the fantasy side of heavy metal, particularly. And then you know, as far as I know, uh, at least in terms of publication, the Conan stuff predates everything yes. by you know fifteen twenty years that Tolkien you know, put out. And so then you have this separate side of it where it's like, maybe it's a little more understated lyrically outside of a bunch of bands that sound exactly like Iron Sword. But, (laughs) you know, you have this whole aesthetic attack on metal where, you know, you have, you have the, the big burly guy, who is wearing the loincloth that Manowar were all copying. Yeah. Although it's, it's interesting because I'm wondering, because Manowar technically got their start before the Conan movie came out. Um, so I imagine they probably got that look more from illustrations of books and things. Um, when, they did when, not when get did it they... from Eternal Champion uh, album covers. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, you're putting the later way before the, the preceding there on that yeah, one. Yeah, but I, I find that those Eternal Champion covers to be like that. Are they, oh, yeah, are they co-opting that relic of, the, of our time or are they, yeah. re, are they reintroducing it? I have no clue. But Well, you know, and the interesting thing to, yeah. to note is modern audiences, um, you know, we can get back to it later as well because it feels like more something to, to end on but um you know with, in genre fiction like like a lot of things you know in the same way we can talk about metal having some sore spots especially with let's say sexism in the 70s and 80s um you know uh, a lot of these writers had that and the conan series is certainly no exception and tolkien has his issues right um, right absolutely yeah especially when you look back you know 40, 50 years ago, yeah. And, and, and so it's that weird thing where, like, if someone looks at, like, the Eternal Champion cover, because that happened, I, th- I think we're all aware of a lot of people who were like, right. oh, that's not in good taste, like, um, having, you know, a naked woman uh, right on the cover and she seemed to be chained up. Although it was, it was a very peculiar... Uh, yeah, not, not to get into specifics about it, but it's sort of like they were attempting to recreate that sort of aesthetic but, from the past and then yeah. it got... It got interpreted in the confines of the present, and yeah. Um, See, I saw that cover, and I just thought of the movie Heavy Metal. Well, like <laughs> yes, and that's it. That's what it is. <laughs> and that's the thing. It's it's it, it, it as a modern audience, it's a little jarring and sort of how uh, it doesn't take into consideration, you know, the you know the the female sex in, in terms of you know being treated like a human being. Right. Um, but you know the legacy of heavy metal is is a lot of stuff that where that was sort of not regarded you know and, and again going back to cuz I, I guess that was a big influence on me was the uh, metal headbanger's journey when they interviewed one of the sociologists um and she talked about how 
especially in the 80s, metal was sort of this place where guys banded together and didn't think about sex, didn't think about gender. Like it was just men banding together in a world of men to do manly, brave things. Um, It's sort of this especially teenager-like way of, especially for awkward teenage guys who maybe weren't having a lot of luck with socializing with women to not think about it. That's an interesting point. I, I find the I find that if you take that point and slice it across heavy metal as music and movies, I find that movies often get a f- much further away with sex appeal, especially horror movies, than maybe metal music can. Um, I find the sex appeal in heavy metal, and this is almost getting to a different topic. I just feel like films enjoy a greater liberty with that, with that play rather than uh, music, especially metal. Cause like you said, metal is a bunch of dudes who don't really want to think about boinking you know, while they're listening to their breakdowns or whatever they listen to. I don't know. Well, you know, I feel like we're ignoring yeah. a lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of cool stuff when we make this conversation. I mean, I was just talking about Manowar. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm thinking about Wasp right now, as you guys talk about how there's not a whole lot of sexy metal. I mean, I, I, I was going to say there is the LA scene, which was nearly the exact opposite of that. Um, you know, in, in, you know, that, um, you know, you have slaughter. You know, that's some sexy metal. <laughs> I mean, Motley Crue. Um, <laughs> You're a nun. And, and you know the the aesthetics of Motley Crue. I think that definitely comes from. Um, I mean, a, a lot of the aesthetics of '80s metal, I think, come from some of the fantasy and post-apocalyptic movies and you know media. Uh, from the 70s and 80s. I like, Joe, I, we, we were talking earlier and kind of to divert the topic away from like sex and metal to something mm-hmm. else. <laughs> I like okay. the idea of fantasy as a tie-in to horror, as a tie-in to metal, because we were talking about Tolkien. Like, is Tolkien heavy metal? I, a little bit. If you watch those Lord of the Rings movies, I'd say they're actually kind of heavy metal. You know, they're, they're extreme in all their degrees, and they're sort of large statements on these. It just... They're extreme movies to me. Well, despite the, their PG thirteen yeah. rating and their general watered downness for Hollywood, I, I yeah. think um, you know, and, and everyone else feel free to chime in. I, I think you know, if you philosophically want to get down to it, uh, the emotion or the experience that kind of ties across all the different types of thematic genres, whether we're talking about horror, whether we're talking about science fiction, whether we're talking about fantasy, is a sense of the sublime. Um, cause you know, in Tolkien, there's definitely horrific moments, but I think the overarching feeling, um, that, that draws people to something like Tolkien and then draws people to then make their music about Tolkien is that sense of epicness and that epicness being sort of a aspect of the sublime. I'm glad that the word epic is now able to be used again, because I think there was a period maybe 10 years ago where everything was epic. And Bacon was epic, man. Shit. Now you can say epic, like literally, and not be weird about it. <laughs> like, but you're it's right. It's epic that, heavy metal that was always very uh, frustrating for me. That I'd be talking about Doom Sword, and they'd be like, "Oh, dude, we're talking about, you know, Sabaton or Rhapsody or whatever." Right? And I'm like, "No, no, no. We're talking about Doom Sword." <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm definitely with you on that, Brandon. Um, I, I mean, you know, and that's sort of the interesting developments. Um, you know, between, you know, European power metal and American power metal, which 
you know, certainly in the 80s, it was just heavy metal. Um, but, you know, it, it, the American stuff is more of that kind of epic um, and more of a Conan the Barbarian, more of a kind of like a dusty old paper book kind of influence versus European power metal being sort of like, I don't know, a, a very bright painting. European power metals always felt kind of like supposed to be like an unapproachable, like golden standard kind of thing, like as close to being inhuman as it can get uh, over time. And then American has kind of been like, what if we just sand, like left all the rough edges on this and then kind of like, I don't know, build a bucket of gasoline on it. And that's kind of like what USPM feels like. <laughs> it's a little bit dirty and I always kind of preferred that, but I, I do get why people like EUPM. I just feel like the more you like turn into a machine, the less it starts to sound like different bands. Uh, right yeah it's just you strip out the riffs and it's not fun anymore yeah <laughs> you need riffs uh, man to to be fair to european black metal and certainly talking about you know tolkien again you know i, I listed a bunch of names earlier but i mean the one european power metal band that i adored and will forever adore is blind guardian and probably their biggest yeah. album is uh a directly a um you know, entirely about uh, uh, Tolkien's pre-Lord of the Rings story, the Silmarillion. So, yeah, Tolkien is extremely metal. And um, I, I think all the movie and TV adaptations, and I guess we're getting a TV adaptation soon, so we'll see about that, um, definitely fit in within the realm of metal. Yeah, and it's easy to generalize, but, I mean, you had... You also have all these European bands that were singing about Moorcock and doing riffy, aggressive, heavy metal and U.S. power metal type stuff, at least, you know, through the 90s when in America it was just fucking done. <laughs> you know, it's uh, especially in like Greece and Italy. Well, Moorcock, I mean, yeah, that's a big influence. Um, <laughs> that's why, uh, all the audience members out there were just Stay with us. I know we're not, you're like, well, they're not talking about 80s movies. Um, oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> trust us. Like, there's there's a lot of tangents. It's, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll come back to the subject again, I'm sure. There's so much to cover. Um, but going off of what Brandon was saying um, with Moorcock, I mean, that is such an integral part of heavy metal. Obviously, you know, Brandon, you and I are big Sirithungal fans. I'm sure some of the other guys here are as well. Um, and, and, you know, part of their legend is the fact that every one of their album covers is a depiction of uh, Elric um, from Moorcock's um, series. And, of course, Moorcock also did science fiction, which is a very early heavy metal influence in that uh, Hawkwind uh not only included a number of songs based on Moorcock's work, but like actually had Moorcock um, do narration, um, I think on their fifth album, sixth album. This is the last one Lemmy was on. Um, and again, of course, Lemmy was all part of that. And then Lemmy went off and, you know, kind of ditched some of the sci-fi stuff with Motorhead. But, you know, it's 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 there. Yeah, it's funny how we talk about sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and heavy metal all in the same sort of umbrella. And it does work from different angles, different perspectives. Like, all these things are intertwined, certainly. I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's 
impart the geek culture aspect of heavy metal. Right. Um, and it very much translates to, you know, when you're really into these genre stories. Um, they're not always the most, especially I think back in the 70s and 80s, they weren't always the most mainstream. I think it started becoming more mainstream around that time. You know, when you get big budget movies, like it starts becoming more acceptable. Like I think right. definitely decades previously, like I think Black Sabbath <laughs> probably were more likely to get bullied in the schoolyard for having a book of you know, a fantasy or sci-fi writer. So I would be remiss if I didn't mention, if we're going to talk about metal and movies, is writer and dearly departed uh, Mike McPadden, who wrote heavy metal movies on Bazillion Points books, where he chronicled 666, yes, 666, metal instances in movies, be it a plot device or like being like a tangent, etc., and uh, I saw him speak when they released that book, and he showed clips for about 20 movies, and it was fantastic. And I wish I could remember them all. I have the book somewhere, but I feel like not mentioning Mike McPadden would be doing metal movies a great disservice. R.I.P. Mike. Um, never got to meet him, but I, I have his book as well, and have definitely uh, opened it up randomly and, and or when thinking of a movie going, oh, I wonder if he covered that one. More often than not, he did. Um, Dude was a repository of knowledge. Did he do The Shining at all? I feel like that movie has. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's an easy one, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny because, I mean, we can dovetail into that. Um, There are some definitely some direct reference, like later Black Sabbath, like we're talking after Dio and Ozzy being out of the picture. Tony Martin era, I want to say. Um, they have a song about The Shining. Mm. Um, I can't remember which album. Uh, Chris Tony Martin, that's uh, <clears throat> Eternal Idol. Yeah, it might be that it's one. Little, yeah, the song's literally called The Shining, so I think that's what it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. That, that would, <laughs> the opening track. <laughs> that would be it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean that's one of the major connections I can think of with that, and I know there's some others that Man. are uh, failing yeah. at the moment. But I like just to speak aesthetically about The Shining for a moment. That movie is terrifying, both in content but also in in mood and atmosphere. Like <laughs> I remember when those elevators open and the blood comes out in that kind of very ethereal scene. I'm just thinking of like my favorite black metal peaking right at that point, right at that climax, because that just feels like a the comeuppance of everything in that movie at, to that point, you know, where it starts to get really surreal and really freaky. Um, I feel I feel the same energy from scenes like that, iconic scenes or even less iconic scenes from other horror movies, and like the intensities in the kind of music I like, generally atmospheric and generally blackened. Um, John, I'm sure, and Joe, are familiar with that book. Um, I'm sure there's plenty of moments in there that he ties in, like uh, climaxes or anything about like wavering intensities as far as movies and how metal kind of follows the same path as horror movies, you know, very peaky. Going back to, going back to the shining, I would say that Wendy Carlos's uh, soundtrack was also very heavy for its time. You know, the, the very like thick, I think it's a square wave at the beginning and so on and so forth. And like, she was so beyond her time when it came to soundtracking and composing and creating synthesizers. And uh, I think that Wendy Carlos should be discussed more in metal circles as a result. 
I mean, she's definitely a pioneer of electronic music. And, you know, in the 80s and even in the 90s, I think electronic music in certain circles was accepted, but in other circles was, was a little looked down on or felt like it wasn't metal. But certainly, you know, in this modern era, um, it's undeniable just how much synthesized music has played into metal and extreme music in general. Um, like any band with with a keyboard, like I mean, you could talk about Wendy Carlos and like Neurosis. I feel like, yeah. I think the keyboard as an instrument, Joe, is an essential connection between heavy metal and movies too. I mean, that's that could go without saying. Definitely, because a lot of um, a lot of horror movie themes uh, predominantly are piano based. Right. Right. Um, I mean, Is there something usually, especially eerie or creepy about the piano? I don't know. I guess so. <laughs> well, it, you know, in one of the most um, iconic um, pieces, which which is synthesizer, is tubular bells. Um, and that was used in the film um, The Exorcist. Um, and the original artist was... Um, Come on. John, Come on, you can do it. You would know this, Mike right? Oldfield. Yeah. Yeah, Oldfield. Um, and of course, The Exorcist. I, th- I think the biggest thing uh, in terms of metal is, uh, you know, Possess, Seven Churches, the track mm. Exorcist. I mean, it opens with them. I, I don't think it's a sample. I think it's them like covering it, essentially the melody. And I, I mean, it's so enwrapping. And then you know, they just burst through the gates with uh, with the riff after that. And it's it's absolutely memorable. I mean, it's still probably my favorite possessed song, and you know mm. that is legendary. And that, along with death, it's one of the earliest instances of death metal. Mm. Going back Man, to they- tubular bells, uh, what I thought was really interesting bringing that up is tubular bells is one of the earliest instances of the recorded use of Western harsh vocals. Uh, around the middle. There's credited as uh, Mike Oldfield does like a kind of thing. They credit him as Neanderthal man. So it's kind of an early instance (laughs) of horror movie metal, which I think is pretty cool. So I have a question for you guys, the uh, movie nerds. So we're talking about all of these old movies that inspired old metal bands. And, you know, I I haven't kept up much with movies uh, as an adult. So when, when would you say that metal bands stopped making songs quite as much about contemporary horror and fantasy movies and whatever, and started just cycling back and doing songs about you know movies from the '70s and '80s, you know after the '70s and '80s had passed? Because there's definitely a tipping point when bands just stopped doing songs about new movies. For the most part, I mean, you're always going to find exceptions, but I mean, I think it, it's a little hard to judge because, like, I often uh, rely on other people's like homework on going like, "Oh, hey, there's this band who has a song that's about this movie," and I never really would have known. And partially, it's because it's usually a blacker death metal band where, if, unless I have the lyric sheet with me, I'm not going to know what the hell they're saying. Um, <laughs> I think. Uh, in terms of modern times, the easiest way to notice is more so with samples. Um, 
because that's a little easier to recognize. But in terms of tapping what you're saying, though, Brandon, like it's definitely true that I think in a, in a wider sense as a culture and metal is certainly part of this, we've the last decade, maybe two decades, relied more and more on nostalgia. Um, and people keep on going back to certain classics, maybe a little right. more versus bands in the 70s and 80s, you know, referencing stuff that was much more contemporary. Yeah, our wretched um, current age of nostalgia. <laughs> I mean, I think partially that's due to technology today allows yeah. access to the breadth of so many things. And certainly, like, I mean, I can remember in college and I would have killed to have something like the Criterion Collection where I could just stream all these movies. Like, I never would have gone to class. I just would have stayed, <laughs> like, getting basically a homemade uh, film degree just watching every <laughs> global classic of cinema. Um, you know, and I couldn't even imagine that, like, having access to something like that 15, 16 years yeah. ago. Brandon, when you asked that question, I was immediately thinking, is the real more embedded question are current horror movies as good as older horror movies? And there's two dynamics even to that question. A, sheer quality. Are we just not good anymore at making truly frightening movies? Or B, um, is there a sense of horror that comes from watching something older or dated? Like, is there a weird sort of eeriness that develops because you know something is from a different time and that gives you a certain atmosphere? I think those things all come into play too. I have an answer for your question, Brandon. Um, horror movies in the 90s were represented largely by industrial metal and um, new metal. And uh, you see black metal and heavy metal and all that stuff kind of looking toward the past and being very nostalgic genres in general, especially now. Um, so it just kind of changed with the times. And now you don't see heavy metal in movies at all, really. Maybe here and there. But... For, for a good portion of the 90s and 2000s, you had, you know, Rob Zombie in movies. You had, uh, what are they called? Uh, Mudvayne, etc. Mm. Rob Zombie in The Matrix. <laughs> Rob Zombie in The Matrix, Mudvayne in Ghost Ship, uh, stuff like that. So metal's representation in the horror world was just different. It's not really music that appeals to us, but it just was what it was. Yeah, I hope that answers. I do your think question. maybe it's harder to get samples from like modern movies too, and like not be like I think if we're getting stuff from seventies, eighties, that's still under copyright. You're still going to get technically ding, but like it's probably not as common as like YouTube's not going to pick up a clip from you know a modern movie. It might be stuff like that. Um, but I do think there's just going to generally sense that you know modern movies aren't as good horror wise. Uh, I don't know if I believe that. I don't know uh, either. Yeah. Like uh, I do, I just think that it's harder to find good samples sometimes from modern movies because it sounds too good. I think like, I, don't Joe, like yeah. good I bet Joe could recommend me a good five or ten, you know, horror movies made in the last three years that would scare the shit yeah. out of me. I, yeah. I mean, I, I'm yeah. still. If if no one does it in the next five years, I'm going to have to kick my ass into doing it. But I, I want you know a black metal band to do a concept album around Robert Eggers' The Witch. Um, <laughs> Because the the Vavitch is that how it's stylized? The Vavitch, yeah. You know, there's a. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say. To me, that's just perfect. I like the reverse idea. I like the idea of a filmmaker 
doing concepts and basing a movie around the basically the audio or the or the sound or the, the perceived soundtrack of any let's say I just say atmospheric black metal uh, you know a movie based around that maybe even like a really abstract movie or something I don't know I mean there Has is that even one. been done really yeah there is one uh, actually uh, if you look up on Metal Archives there was a band called Queequeg. Yeah. which had members that of Kralis. super and, obscure, John. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's not. Hear me out. It had members of yeah. Kralis and uh, Hunter oh, okay. from Liturgy. Really? And uh, they soundtracked a movie with uh, Rob Lowe uh, from the Chicago band. Uh, well, he was he, He's from Chicago. He's in sleep now. But um, yeah, Rob Lowe, and uh, it's a metal movie, an atmospheric black metal movie. You're kidding me. you got to link me this. I don't think I've heard of this, and if I have, I've forgotten. Yeah. Yeah, I'll send you it. Yeah, cool. Kind of, kind of on topic is there is a Sarah Thungol's first song since reforming being for a movie that has still not actually come out yet. But uh, I don't even care because that song is definitely better than whatever the movie is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost guaranteed. Are we in? Like, are we all in? All in agreement that that uh, Sarah Thungol's latest album is just a real banger in every way and can't be surpassed even by other genres. <laughs> yes, it's actually required. We say that in every podcast. I think it comes <laughs> <up> every time. <laughs> I mean, I you know, I, I was talking about the EP, and you know. For, for half of the intro, I was just like, yeah, we, we, we love Sirith Ungold. Like, <laughs> there's okay. all these instances. We talked about the last album, the full length, uh, and and then Brandon did a great job with the uh, interview with Rob. Yeah. About the EP. I'm looking forward to sitting in on a rehearsal and matching your experience there. <laughs> I got invited. Well, oh, you did? Good. Yeah. That's, Yeah. Go down to Ventura. It's uh, there's well, not much of anything else to do. Oh, that's well, that's why uh, when when we got on the go. phone, he saw my area code. He was like, "Oh, dude." <laughs> <laughs> it's like I, you know, I've since moved out of the state, but you know, yeah. I visit my parents. So, yeah, perfect. Um, yeah, their rehearsal space is pretty nice. Um, so, I wanted to go back to metal and movies because there's yes, a yes. great instance <laughs> of a sample from a movie enhancing an album, I think. And mm-hmm. uh, Cult of the Ghouls uh, Coven, which is their mm-hmm. their double album, high concept. It has a novella and everything that's in like uh, like an early version of modern English. It's all really cool. But uh, there is a portion in which they actually play a sample from Possession. The uh, the subway scene. Oh so God! Do they? Yeah, yeah I, it's it's something. John, it's really uh, something. You, you've seen that movie, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's um, <laughs> it's really yeah. Intense. That's a hard movie to find. Um, I paid God. What did I pay? I paid like forty bucks to get the Blu-ray, um, and that was the wow. cheapest I could find it for like over two years. Um, I did not pirate it. <laughs> John did not. Warner Brothers or whoever has a copyright. <laughs> um, that movie is insane. Like I finally sat down and watched it. And for for anyone out there who's not familiar, it has a very young Sam Neill and um, God. What was the lead actress? Um, like I gotta Google this so someone talk. Um, uh, so. A Cult of the Ghoul, to give everyone a little bit of background, they're a black metal band from Poland. But they're very progressive, and they just like to have a good time. 
So Coven has these big grooves and nice riffs, and it's just a great time. Even if the songs are like 22 minutes, they just they pass by. I know, it's like, oh man, 22 minutes, what the hell? But it works. It's really good. I would recommend mm-hmm. checking out their album Coven. I feel like describing cultists to schools as a good time without context is kind of misleading, but yeah. <laughs> well, well no, and, think and, about it. Yeah, you gotta I understand. Mean, you got to understand John a little bit, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, possessions it a good sinister. time if if you if you you know if you think that like um, a David Lynch movie can be a, a romantic movie, um, and, and by ro- that I I mean like you know Perfect Blue or something really fucked up like Eraserhead. Because possession is an extremely fucked up movie. Like it's, it's even even before the weird shit happens. Like when it's just sort of a domestic drama for the first 40, 45 minutes, it was one of the most tense movies I've ever seen in my life. Like the the dialogue of these two people hating each other and revealing their dislike of each other was so goddamn intense. I, I have another one while we're talking about perfect samples that actually ties in on a bunch of levels to everything we've been talking about. There's this doom metal band from New York called Blood Farmers. And so they took their name from Invasion of the Blood Farmers. They started off as a Black Sabbath cover band. And then in the early days, they would play with horror films being projected on a screen behind them. And so they put out this album, fuck, like six or seven years ago now, called Headless Eyes, that they took uh, they took the t- the tr- you know the the album from this old horror movie that I haven't seen uh, that's called the same thing and what they did is they have this per- this sample from the movie playing while the singer in the title track is fucking um, singing over the narration he just the, he's just trailing it. So the guy, you know, in the, in the narration is going, you know, of course I'm twisted because I'm sick. And then immediately afterwards, the singer is just singing the same thing. And it's the by far the coolest use of a sample in, a, in any metal song I've ever heard because it's directly integrated into the doom metal in a way that I just, I haven't heard anybody try to do anything like that anywhere near as well. My, my vote for especially as like an introduction to them, I think I can't think of much of anything that can top it up. I think in it, it, oddly enough, it has a, a kind of funny sample at the end, but I think one of the greatest movie samples ever used in a heavy metal album is on Cryptopsy's None So Vile when they take um, the, the lion growl and then the line, I do that rather well, don't you think? before they immediately start blasting away. And that line is from The Exorcist 3, which you would think is sort of a schlocky uh, sequel, but is actually a pretty fantastic movie. Um, highly, highly recommend it. I've heard multiple That's people my- into horror movies say that The Exorcist 3 is underrated and, and mis, uh, uh, <laughs> misjudged as a kind of a bad sequel to being actually... That's a really, really well, good Cryptopsy sample, but it's not my favorite. My favorite would have to be open face surgery. Ah. With the, the Hellraiser 2 sample. Close your eyes. This might hurt a lot. <laughs> well, and of, of course, uh, the album ends with a sample of uh, Bruce Campbell from Army of Darkness. Oh, one of my absolute favorites. That's it. Go ahead and run. Run home and cry to mama. <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, which is so very different from you know how that album opens. But you know, it's you know after 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 the brutality of that album, right. it's, it's nice to end on, on a bit of a funny note. Um, and a horror comedy I think I, sample I, is perfect for that. I think Macedon's uh, first album remission are in special note here for the first mm-hmm. moment on the first song being the T-Rex scream from uh, Jurassic Park. Just that two, three second clip. And then they break into uh, whatever they're for. I can't remember the name of the first song. From remission, it's Mother Puncher, man. I think it is Mother Puncher, but it might not be. I don't know. But yeah, you know what I mean? It's like that, that, that clip alone gave that album just that immediate punch. And it's like, I love the fact that it's kind of a pop culture reference as opposed to some obscure horror movie. It's like, (laughs) it's a recognizable sound, uh, which is a good use. Yeah. Another good one, actually, uh, just thought of this cathedral with a, Hopkins oh, yeah. Witchfinder General. Yes. They've got two oh, quotes yeah. and there's like one in the middle. Oh, actually in the beginning too, I should say. Then they've got like a kind of bridge in the middle where they bring some more quotes in at the end it ends with like uh like it's kind of like a scream like you took him kind of thing as it ends. That was pretty tight. It helps as like a banging song otherwise. Wouldn't mm-hmm. really be as good a sample if it wasn't, but yeah. Hey John. How um how you're familiar with that French weirdo black metal specter, right? Yeah. Yeah, they uh, they're um, the art to disappear. They're, I think their best album. I, oh man, I like the prior one too. But in any case, it's all Twin Peaks sort of sample based, and there's yep. even a minute long track that sort of uh, bisects the album. That's just these weird uh, and they're they're uh, they um, manipulate the samples um, to make them even more eerie and creepy. But they're all like kill again, and it's all that Bob energy uh, from Twin Peaks. And I found that album in particular to be almost defined by the horror that Twin Peaks, you know, evokes in its sort of, you know, psychological, sort of philosophical way. And it I mean, defines Spectre that album without always, it. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, Spectre was always like a spooky kind of band. Mm-hmm. So like I, I have Mescaline and I have the Spectre EP and uh, that stuff was like horrifying back in the day. So right. for me, the art to disappear like was a big departure especially since it's instead of vocals, it has samples. Mm-hmm. So it, for me, it wasn't as good, but I can totally see exactly what you're going for with that. Right on. Yeah. That thesis. Yeah. Uh, one band, you know, Ted talking about, you know, uh, cathedral and God, I, I love that song, you know, Matthew Hopkins, Witchfinder general. And, you know, it takes directly from the great, um, Vincent Price performance in that movie. Um, and the, the music video takes a bunch of clips from that movie, and it works very, very well. Um, it's such a 90s music video, too. Like, you look at the production, everything, and it just screams 90s. Uh, like, top, top of the line, like, well, not top of the line. It's not like it was, like, you know, uh, the, <laughs> it was not, like, black and white or something from Michael Jackson, <laughs> yeah. which... Which uh, someone told me was like the production on that could be done on an iPhone today. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, another great one with samples and, and, and even beyond that, again, sort of the relevance of film and, and certainly it, it very prevalent in doom metal and it's prevalent in some other forms of metal, but that sort of sleazy grindhouse films. Like, that is such a big part of certain segments of metal culture, and no band, I feel like, better encompasses that than Electric Wizard. Um, 
I mean, it, 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 I could go through lists of different movies and stuff that they've used. Um, you know, a bunch of British horror films. Um, you know, one one. You know, I'd been wondering about for a long time the song "Barbarian" off of um, you know their big album uh, "Dope Throne." Um, you know, it opens the wizard. <laughs> And I was always like, where is that from? It's it's distorted. It's not like perfectly just sampled. It's a bit distorted, but it's from Conan the Barbarian. When um, the female character gets killed by the snake arrow and she's, you know, in kind of her last breaths, she's like, oh, the wizard. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God. Like, that's such a that's really cool sample. Yeah. I kind of yeah, wish yeah. that I liked that album now. <laughs> there's a only kind of though pistols at dawn a, sir pistols at dawn as you wear your there's electric a, wizard shirt seriously there's a song that we're all ignoring that I think we need to uh, address and that would be the wicker man oh yeah yeah I mean we can't not talk about Iron Maiden well in in Iron Maiden in movies um it's quite a few the funny thing is like you know, they, they did a lot of stuff where there's movies um, and even actually TV shows. Um, but, you know, especially being being the more literary type guys, it, it is more like anything with a movie connection. It is more the original literary source that they were referencing. Um, yeah. But, you, you, but yeah, you were talking about, the talking about like the 84 Dune movie when, <laughs> when they were writing about Dune. David Lynch, who uh, asked to have his name officially removed from that. Um, <laughs> yeah, Dune has a whole legacy around itself. Um, yes, it but does. John, yeah, let's 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 talk about the Wicker Man. When when I was doing, you know, like I mentioned, I did that series and talked about Wicker Man because um, that's definitely something that's had multiple influences. Well, I mean, like we we think about you know heavy metal and horror movies and now we think of dark kind of things and the wicker man itself is a very upbeat song so it kind of creates this duality of like the metalheads expectations for the representation of horror and what the actual representation of horror is you know it's and it's and it's still like to and i don't like to use the word normies but to like the people who don't like metal this is extreme to these people so we have this weird spectrum that develops across metal nerddom. And I think mm-hmm. that, you know, the Wicker Man's personification of horror exemplifies that. Wicker Man is a very interesting movie in cinema and definitely in horror. Um, you know, it's, it's cited as, uh, along with Witchfinder General and um, Blood on Saints Claw, which I finally saw for the first time, I think, last year. Um, the ending of that movie isn't necessarily the best, but and, and I swear there's been some bands who had to have sampled from that movie. Um, I'm sure Electric Wizard have somewhere. Um, but the thing with the Wicker Man again, uh, and and again the connection with metal, you know, Christopher Lee late in life, uh, the connection with the Lord of the Rings movies, the fact that you know he recorded stuff with Rhapsody on Fire. Um, you know, he made his own metal album, like Christopher Lee. Yes. <laughs> Christopher Lee is metal as fuck. Um, and, <laughs> and if you have any doubt of that, just listen to, um, P 
Peter Jackson uh, trying to give him direction on what it, the sound or feeling would be like of stabbing someone in the back. And Lee said, oh, I already know. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> supposedly he killed some people in World War II when he was a uh, secret agent. He actually um, corrected the script. Yeah, to He's reflect like, that. Yep. Yeah. Um, and and honestly, you know, Lee, I mean, such a huge catalog. I mean, you can even just talk about his his role as Dracula in the 70s, probably the biggest Dracula after Bela Lugosi. Um, and, you know, obviously that was a huge influence on the goth scene. Um, but... Uh, you know, a big influence on the horror connection with metal, but the Wicker Man is definitely something else. Um, he wanted to play that role so much that he gave up um, actually taking any money for it um, because, you know, it wasn't a huge budget movie. Um, so, uh, and then, like you said, Iron Maiden uh, on their comeback album, Brave New World, have a song called Wicker Man. The music video for that definitely makes reference to the Wicker Man. The lyrics, uh, a little bit. It, it it kind of feels like they're not that they threw it in, but it wasn't maybe the sole focus. Um, but definitely the music video it pushes towards that because there's sort of it's a, a, a smacking song too. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's one of their best. Um, and then also as well, uh, there's one band which I probably shouldn't mention have used samples from The Wicker Man. Uh, and then there's uh, Agalock, who used it on the yes, White EP. the White EP, yeah. And some great, so, some of the best chewing on dialogue scenes where, um, it's funny because it's like in the 70s, I have to imagine that had to be pretty radical. And obviously today as a generally more secular society, especially in Europe, but but even so in the States, there's a big thing of sort of this uh, paganism versus Christianity theme. And, you know, the shock of the Wicker Man is sort of this sense of a place where Christianity has died out and been replaced by this sort of neo-pagan um, tradition. And Christopher Lee being an advocate for it very eloquently um, defending it against this very evangelic um, police officer. And it's just some of the finest writing. That theme is commonly played out, paganism versus Christianity. That's a huge trope. Yeah. In, uh, yeah. Well, and I was going to say, um, I mean, The Wicker Man is interesting because it's it's sort of seen as the start of folk horror um, right. And in that way, you know, we you can kind of parallel that with the development of folk metal. Um, and, and the interesting thing with with folk horror is sort of the sense that the horror is in stuff that ne- wouldn't necessarily seem horrific to some people, like being out in the countryside near the edge of civilization um, in, you know, the common folk and it's sort of, you know, every every horror, I think, is the idea of any kind of horror story or horror movie is you take something that people might be afraid of. And even if it's irrational, you sort of play a logic experiment of, well, what if this is serious? Like, what if what if there was actually something to fear here? And then you create a story around it. 
Right. Yeah, I think, Joe, you're pointing out the delineation between horror and imagery, maybe necessarily in horror and lore, and the lore itself. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's you see that in metal as well. I mean, you have you have horror that's built into the lyric or the lore of whatever theme or whatever they're going for. But you also have just the horror endemic in like just brutal music or brutal imagery. And uh, some great films have one or the other, a combination of the both. But um, I definitely see a lot of the brutality, uh, some more gory horror movies. I see that reflected clearly in <laughs> whether directly or not in, you know, brutal death metal or even modern OSDM or any of that stuff. You, you just have that, those, those images of, of, of body mutilation and all that stuff. They, they're, they're almost directly tied. Um, that's sort of where I distance myself though. Cause like a lot of Cronenbergian like body horror, like I love the thing and stuff, but it creeps me out. Like it gives me the heebie-jeebies <laughs> and like, I'm okay with gore, like alien gore, but when it gets to be like, morphing different forms or like growing new appendages or that stuff kind of it gives me the gives me the unease so to speak so um in a in in not the right way not in the not in the good sort of horrified way but in the more like unsettled way maybe maybe i should learn to like that i don't know <laughs> um oh and brandon you're you're a big fan of uh slough egg or the lord weird slough egg and um, I, th I think it's off of Twilight of the Idols. They have a song called The Wicker Man. Um, of course, that that's making more reference, not to the movie at all, but like the actual. Um, the, well, it, it, that's the thing with the movie is it's not, you know, it's not entirely fictional. There was such a thing as The Wicker Man, at least if we can believe Roman accounts, which there is a question to that because um, they definitely try to make. Uh, the Celts seem as barbaric as possible. Um, but yeah, I think like from the journals of Julius Caesar himself, um, there's sort of these accounts of uh, the Celts in, I guess what would be today, northern France, and then in the British Isles, um, sacrificing people in these giant wooden person-looking structures, uh, lighting them on fire. And to the Romans, this was very barbaric, you know, not civilized like crucifixion is. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it's sloughing. It's, you know, they're great in that how they cross over so much from fantasy into science fiction and back and forth and back and forth. Because, um, I mean, not, you know, it's based on, as far as I know, a role-playing game. But, you know, you could certainly take it apart and probably find elements from different movies and books. But um, their album Traveler, I think, is one of the best heavy metal albums ever. Um, and lyrically, I mean, the, the wordplay that um, is used is just something that always transfixes me to that album. What's really crazy about that album is that Scalzi it's his least favorite of their first five and he feels like it's mm. their most commercial album. And he's like, aren't you guys heavy metal fans? Why do you guys fixate so much on the commercial <laughs> one? The melodies, man, the melodies <laughs> can't be. Always a good cracks melody. me up. The, I've never heard that, that he had kind of a low opinion of that. album, which I guess kind of explains why they don't play that many songs of it. Every time I've seen them live. Um, they, I mean, always, they do like, 
a few. They do like four, four really consistently. But I mean, I think that a lot of it though is just that, like he he said he's he likes it, but then it's like it's his least favorite one out of the fir- those first few, and so then people keep going, oh yeah, play songs off of that, play songs off of that, and he's like, but I don't like it as much, and so it's like he's come to I guess just resent that a little separately I think from the music itself because he said that he likes the album for what it is. It's just the fans that he doesn't like quite as much. <laughs> We're constantly probably saying, hey, have you ever thought of playing the album front to back? Yeah, I thought about it, and fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> hey, have you ever thought about go fuck yourself? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that has happened. Maybe, maybe in nicer terms, but it's it's happened. Uh, they're, they're fantastic to see live, though. Um, we were talking about Iron Maiden, though, um, and well, and you mentioned about like, because there is a lot of classic bands, especially from the '80s, that did have songs about at least books that around the same time got turned into movies, or you know, books from yeah. earlier decades that around the '80s got turned into pretty classic movies. Um, like, f- funny enough, like I always think of Blind Guardian and especially Anthrax as the Stephen King bands. Because I think, and not like they've done a ton, but each of them have done at least like three to Anthrax, I think maybe five or six, like Stephen King songs, like based off of his Tommy Knockers and yeah. that's um, that's always the first one I think of Stephen King and metal is I just immediately go straight, I go straight past like your Shinings and whatever, and I go straight for <laughs> uh, fucking Tommy Knockers is it's just like. So out of Tommy all the knockers, things you're gonna Tommy write knockers, about it, you know, Tommy knockers, Tommy knockers. Yeah, it's like, I mean, it's it's a great song for for. I I haven't read the story, but most people have told me it's it's not great. Uh, I think there was it's a fine made for TV movie. Um, I think that's when he was all cooked out. It's yeah. funny because we talk about all this stuff, and it's like I haven't actually seen The Shining. I read oh. the book. I read the book, and it's like I was like, all right, I'm, it's like that sounds fun, and then I moved on with my life. <laughs> and that's how that's how I, I am with a lot of these like Stephen King movies. Just yeah. like I haven't seen Green Mile either or stuff like that. Well, I, I do love Green Mile, and I did like uh, all of you know. The, I, anyone can question my you know uh, my manhood or anything like that, but I openly weep watching the Green Mile and watching Shawshank Redemption. Uh, Brandon's got a guest with him, his dog. <laughs> My I favorite Stephen dog. King movie. Oh, oh, hey, Doggo. That's a cute Doggo. You can't yeah. see him on the podcast, but just trust us. Good looking dog. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, it looks like it. But yeah, Andrew- speaking of the 80s, uh, I think the only movie that Stephen King himself directed, um, Maximum Overdrive, which has Emilio Estevez, <laughs> I think. An yeah. insanely stupid and ridiculous movie. However, I think the soundtrack was actually mostly done by Angus Young. And, uh, yeah, ACDC. Yeah, yeah, right on. Yeah, there, there's. I mean, that's the '86. Other... So that's yeah. square in our yeah. '80s range. But that movie, that movie is more of the ridiculous side, the insane, like, we, like, we, yeah, yeah. We talked a lot about, um, you know, metal being sampled in movies. Um, but one aspect, well, metal movies sampled, uh, yeah, mo- movies being sampled in metal songs. But the other aspect, especially more prevalent in the 80s, is metal bands being on the soundtracks for some movies. 
doing um, the whole thing sometimes. Oh yeah. Well, and and I think stunt rock. And probably the most classic example, one of the earliest examples, has to be uh, heavy metal, which we very briefly yeah. mentioned earlier. Um, it which is so funny. I saw a friend on Facebook just a few days ago. It was like, hey guys, I watched heavy metal for the first time, and it's like. Dude, you're in your 30s. How did you – you're like a hardcore metalhead. And it's like, sh- shut up. I'm from El Salvador. Like, we didn't get shit. So, you know, check your white privilege. <laughs> oh, it's uh, – there's another one. You say El Salvador. It made me think of Spain. Um, and there's there was drowned productions back in the early 90s. They put out mm-hmm. Demigod and mm. um, all sorts of – you know, 90s Finnish death metal. And that guy, Dave Rotten, yeah, he's kind of an asshole. Don't edit that out. Um, but he uh, has a, or he had a record store for a long time and that appeared in a horror movie. And so then I don't even remember which one it was, but you can see a guy going into his record store in Spain and like you can see like fucking like demigod records and stuff like in the background in this horror movie that had nothing to do with metal as far as I know. It's, well, uh, it's a Spanish film? I think so. Because um, the only one, and it's so funny you mentioned it, because if it's the one I was thinking of, uh, I, won't, I was going to mention it at some point. I mean, it's not an 80s movie. I think it came out in 95. But um, I think it's Day of the Beast, which is, is definitely a horror movie. And there is a scene where a priest walks into a heavy metal shop. Uh, and he's looking for, you know, very evil albums and the, the uh, you know, attendant of the shop is sort of surprised and he's like, oh, okay, father, yeah, yeah, you should try this one out. Oh, uh, no, try this one out. And it, it's a fantastic, dark, comedic horror film. Um, it, the director is, uh, I believe, Gabriel de la Inglesa. Um, that was his second film. It's sort of seen as sort of a new Spanish new wave um, and he's gone on to do other horror movies, some thriller movies. Um, he has a really good one on Netflix. I think it's just called The Bar. Um, but uh, cannot recommend everyone out there. Day of the Beast, uh, El Dia de la Bestia. Um, Severin recently re-released it because it had been out of print for forever. Like you could not find it. I'd been, I'd seen the clip in Spanish, no English subtitles or anything, uh, of that record store scene, and I was like, I got to see this movie. This is this is insane. I got to see this movie. Couldn't find it anywhere. Not until like last year, I think it was on the service Canopy, and I think it's also on Tubi. Um, but then Severin did a really nice release. Like it's on 4K and Blu-ray now. Like if you want to go buy it, uh, and it's also on uh, Shutter which is like the ultimate horror streaming site. And uh, even just this past Friday, Joe Bob Briggs uh, included it in his Last Drive-In um, series. Um, it, it, is, it is a movie I would recommend to every metalhead. Um, some of the humor uh, is, is a little uh, uh, politically incorrect for today um, compared to Spain in 1995. Um and there's also full frontal male nudity, so a warning Sweet. to anyone sensitive about that. <laughs> it's a, it's um, a bonus, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, that's uh, I like the idea of of concluding this this discussion on movies by 
talking about full frontal nudity and not necessarily a horror movie, but <laughs> the fight scene in Eastern Promises. Anytime oh, anyone mentions yeah. full frontal nudity in any feature film, I think of that scene because it is absolutely barbaric. It's that scene. It's just, and it's full frontal, but not in like the sexy way, more of like the naked dudes fighting the death in a bathhouse kind of way. So it's, that sounds it, pretty sexy it, to it, me. It, yeah. It, yeah, it's, it's also heavy. That scene is also heavy as fuck. I mean, heavy metal in every in every the, dimension. Yeah, it's 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 definitely a heavy movie. Um, it's funny because like of all of Cronenberg's stuff again, because that was a, kind of after he left the body horror. It's a hard one for me to try to find a metal connection, but mm. it's a very good movie. And that scene is. I mean, I do wonder if a double was used, or if you just get a really good look at um, Vigo, at Vigo Mortensen's uh, junk. There. That's not a double <laughs> junk. That's full junk. <laughs> no, no, no prosthetics in use, maybe. Um, but uh, well, in, in speaking of Cronenberg, I mean, one connection is uh, I think Videodrome. If anyone yeah. thoroughly enjoys the Strapping Young Lad album, City, uh, very much. It, it's slightly abbreviated, so it's slightly different, but. Um, Basically, when he says, you know, all hail the new flesh, that's straight out of Videodrome. Yeah. I would love to hear Langdon's input on City versus Videodrome and that connection yeah. because Langdon, obviously, a huge Devin Townsend fan. Well, we've yeah. we've been rattling on the subject and we, we will, uh, for, for the IO audience out there, we will definitely come back to this. There, It's such a fertile ground and we were tapping it all sorts of places, but... Um, yeah, it's nice to broach the yeah, it's nice to broach the subject and then look f look further for deeper places to dig. Yeah. And and Brandon, that's awesome that you just mentioned that and you were like, I don't even know the name of the movie, but I was like, fuck yes. Love that one. Can can we leave some very brief mentions to Green Room and Bone Tomahawk as far as metal related uh oh, stuff yeah. because Green Room um, that's that was really fucking good. I don't I don't watch a lot of horror movies as I might have said at some point during this. I definitely said it before we started, but uh, I thought that was fantastic. And that one, the score I think was picked by Joel Grind from uh, Toxic Holocaust, who's approached and asked, "Hey, can you pick the songs that are in it, and can you pick what you know?" I don't want to spoil anything because anybody that's listening needs to go watch it, but it's definitely a metal-related and a punk-related horror movie. And then Bone Tomahawk was directed by a guy who was in a heavy metal band of... Uh, people have very mixed feelings about them, but he was in a heavy metal band called Realm Builder before he uh, you know, did Bone Tomahawk. So those are some of the most direct horror movie tie-ins that you can get with metal. Definitely something um well andrew ted can you guys like like I, I got one i would definitely love to talk about but first um can you think of like a modern movie it doesn't have to necessarily be horror but like has a metal playing a very prominent role in it mandy does that count yeah i, w I would count that's an up. easy one for for modern movies i mean i i think they talked about the weapon that nicholas cage has it was directly Influence from the fr uh, font logo of the Celtic right. Frost logo, and then his his wife in the film was wearing a, a, a metal band T shirt. I can't remember which one it was. Black Sabbath, I think. Uh, yeah, or, it might have been. I think it might have been two. I think it was Black Sabbath. 
anyway, it was a clearly identifiable modern, or sorry, clear identifi- identifiable metal band. And it was like, the, they even marketed that movie sort of in the heavy metal vein. I think they had on the trailer some pretty heavy music, sort of like soundtracky heavy metal stuff. So yeah. Mandy's well, a good the, example. Yeah. The other thing um, to mention is, uh, well, it, it, again, <laughs> everything finds its way back to Tolkien in Lord of the Rings. Uh, there you but, go. Uh, one of the biggest metalheads working in the film business is Elijah Wood. Uh, the dude is a legit fan, and in a number of his movies, you will find connections. Um, I did not know this. And uh, well, and he has a production company, Spectral uh, Spectrovision. And they've mm-hmm. done a number of movies that have likewise had sort of metal connections, like Mandy. Cool. They, they produced cool. Mandy. They also produced Color Out of Space. Um, yeah, and a few others. Um, so, yeah. Uh, he, you know, uh, a goal maybe to get him for an interview, because uh, that would be great. Uh, if he's such a big metal fan, why haven't I seen him in a Dead Congregation shirt? <laughs> <laughs> That's not... Joe, that's Joe. You're sitting on a. Mil- that's a damn good idea. I like that idea. Yeah, yeah. We'll, yeah. we'll work on that. Um, well, you now made me think of something else, so I'll, I'll mention two, and then <laughs> we can wrap up here. Um, an old '80s classic uh, horror movie that, regardless, it's a very gory movie. So I, I would give a warning if you're not a gore fan. It's a bit of a hard watch, but the um, movie Demons. Um, which kind of had a big cast of all sorts of the Italian horror grades, uh, late seven, uh, no, 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 eighties. Yeah. had to be the eighties, but there is an amazing scene like in heavy metal cinema collaboration, hall of fame scene where this guy gets on like a Yamaha motorcycle running through a movie theater with a samurai sword chopping down like demon possessed zombies all the while, accepts fast as a shark is playing. Oh, <laughs> that's cool as fuck. Like, ev- everyone here and everyone listening, pull up YouTube, look for that clip, and then go see the movie. It is fantastic. Um, but the one I was thinking earlier and, and uh, is a movie called Metalhead, which is one of my favorite movies. It's an Icelandic film, so... Uh, the original Icelandic title is something like Mata House or something like that. I'm sorry, I will butcher anything in Icelandic. Um, <laughs> for everyone out there, I believe it's on Canopy and Fandor and potentially on Amazon Prime. Um, it's basically about a young girl whose older brother is a metalhead. And you just sort of at first casually are aware of that. And they kind of live in a rural part of Iceland. And he gets killed in a farming accident. And it sort of sends the whole family into this depression. And she finds an outlet for this depression about losing her brother is to take on sort of his metal world. Like she takes all of her like little girl clothes and everything and lights them on fire and just starts wearing her brothers like Judas Priest and Iron Maiden shirts um, and starts trying to learn to play guitar. And then it cuts to her being older and kind of being a little bit lost and, you know, a, a bit of a, 
a bit of an outcast in the very small rural society there. And then things escalate when she discovers on TV a newsreel about the events in Norway with the church burnings and everything. And she suddenly takes a liking to black metal. Um, And there's many other aspects to the movie, but it's a fantastic film. It's a drama. It's not a horror movie. It's not really a genre film. Um, And I think it has one of the best humanistic sort of portrayals of of a metalhead. Um, And I thoroughly enjoy it and can't recommend it enough. Well, what you just said reminded me of my favorite humanist uh, horror movie that's centered around metalheads, which is, you know, this is Spinal Tap. <laughs> Humanistic in a very humbling way. <laughs> I mean, you had you had guys from famous metal bands saying, "I thought this was a real band and a real documentary because this is basically what happened." You know, true. My touring earlier touring years, so I think that if we're talking about metal and uh, oh yeah movies, no, we, we have to at least say something about this is Spinal Tap. My favorite is when they react to the review of their album Shark Sandwich, and the review states more like shit sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) And they they just can't digest it. And and of course, the classic, the amps go up to 11 trope. Everyone's aware of that. Or or when they get lost backstage. Um, And the other one, which supposedly I think was a riff on Black Sabbath, Um, I think... During the, I forget what album period they did it, but, you know, they're like, oh, we're, we're going to have Stonehenge, you know, on stage. And they exit with a napkin while they're writing it. He actually puts it in like inches instead of feet. So <laughs> so the, the slabs from Stonehenge come down and it's, as they say, you know, they got little people on stage to, you know, Again, make it this weird sort of Celtic mythology thing. Uh, but they're like, the little people were about to trample all over Stonehenge. Um. <laughs> God. Yeah, that movie is, is, is balls to the wall ridiculous. I mean, yeah. there is no question about it. Uh, yeah. You also have to give it credit, though, because these were like middle-aged guys, even within the movie's universe, that were then doing all of this stuff. It wasn't like a movie about teenagers. Right. You know, you had... Flashbacks of them playing fucking, you know, hippie hippie flower power shit in the 50s. <laughs> and so it's like, this is a band that's established as being this heavy metal band that have been around for like 30 years. Right. That were never playing heavy metal until like, you know, the 80s. It, you know, if you were to take it a, like yeah. they were fat, like, like they jumped on the bandwagon like in the late 70s. Uh, I, I do love... Because I think it's you know, the '60s they did the flower child thing, and the '50s is when they get the start with the song "Give Me Some Money." Yeah. <laughs> give me some money. So good, but you had I bands wonder, that were totally fucking like that. I mean, it's like, oh yeah, absolutely. It, you know, even and like I think metal, it, like really yeah. heavy metal stuff. I mean, you have like yeah. Blind Illusion. Like, if you guys have listened to like, you know, they're this super heavy progressive thrash band from the late 80s that had members of like every popular thrash band from the Bay Area but then like their earliest recordings it's like it's just like rock stuff and it's just it's it's good rock stuff but it's just really interesting how many bands really did do exactly what Spinal Tap did I think probably the best parallel is you know obviously he different bands it evolved but someone who was there from the 50s in that sort of you know, immediately on the tails of Elvis 
and then going into full-on metal godhood is Ronnie James Dio. Um, like, I mean, no one more, I think, perfectly embodies that. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was what? He was like in his late 30s or his 40s when he joined Black Sabbath? 30s, I think. I think he was in his f- maybe mid to late 30s. He was in, uh, I think, well, I think he was in his mid 30s when he joined Rainbow. Okay, you might be right. Yeah. Because he had Ronnie and the Prophets in the 50s. I think he was 40 when the first Dio album came out. That might be it. I'm going to Google it. We have okay. the internet. Well, we don't need to speculate. <laughs> well, I, I think that's a good ending point here. Um, I want to thank all of you guys. Uh, you know, this is an amazing set of movies and bands and everything. And I definitely think we'll maybe in the future narrow it down a bit. But um, this was fun. And let's definitely do some more heavy metal in movies. Fuck yeah, man. Yeah, agreed. All right, everyone out there in uh, La La Land, have fun. Take care. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to Screaming Bloody Oranges, the Invisible Oranges podcast, via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podbean, and other streaming services. We'll make a post on our website at www.invisibleoranges.com to accompany the release of each episode. Visit us anytime for more in-depth heavy metal coverage that goes a step above and beyond.